0: Welcome to PB&J Connection, this will not be televised podcast. Thanks for checking us out. I'm PB.
1: And I'm Jay.
0: Our health-related discussions will convey educational information about medical
1: research, studies, facts, findings,
0: and experiences of people from every
1: walk of life. Concepts will be simple and easy to understand. We've got you covered, and we promise to not be boring. So
0: let's dive into the world of health you won't find on your television.
1: So Pam, what is the trivia question for today?
0: Ah, the trivia question for today is, how come you are never alone? Now, if you want to hear the answer to that question, wait till the end of the podcast.
1: Welcome everybody to PB&J Connection. Today's podcast, we're going to talk about hernias. The Pope had an incisional hernia, so it kind of got us wondering, what the heck is a hernia? So, for those who don't know what a hernia is, um, hernias are common. Um, Some types are more common than others. Inguinal hernias affect about 25% of all men or people who are assigned male at birth. Hiatal hernias affect about 20% of people in the United States and 50% of people over the age of 50. Congenital hernias occur in about 15% of newborns, mostly umbilical. Incisional hernias make up about 10% of hernias, uh, like the Popad, and all the other types make up another 10%. Um, Pam's going to get ready to talk about the most common hernias, but I'm just going to go really quickly and and tell everybody what other kind of hernias there are. Who knew there was so much information about hernias, right? (laughs) So the umbilical hernia, they happen when some of the intestine pushes through the abdominal muscles into the belly button and they're most common in infants. Hiatal hernias, um, that's where part of the stomach or other abdominal tissue slides up into the middle of the chest through the hiatus. The hiatus is an opening in the diaphragm, um, the muscular wall separating the chest cavity from the abdomen. Boy, that sounds painful. Um, Inguinal hernias are the most common And Pam will talk about those so I'm not even going to go into a description. Um, The femoral hernia is one of the most serious types of hernias. They happen when tissue or part of the bowel slides through a weak muscle wall into the femoral canal at the top of the inner thigh or groin. That also sounds very painful. Um, The epigastric hernia is relatively common. Um, They're not serious typically and they occur between the lower part of the rib cage and the belly button. Um, they uh, typically contain fatty tissue rather than part of the bowel. The incisional hernia, which is what the Pope had, they can occur in 10 to 15% of people who have had any type of abdominal surgical incision. This type of hernia might develop immediately or months to years after the surgery. Um, The Spigellian hernia is a rare type of hernia and happens when part of the bowel pokes through the side of an abdominal muscle. Boy, that sounds painful too. Um, Muscle hernias happen when the muscle pokes through its lining. They often occur in the leg. Strangulated hernias. If the wall that the hernia protrudes through closes, a strangulated hernia can occur. This stops the bowel from receiving blood flow and requires immediate medical attention. The ventral hernia happens when tissue bulges through an opening in the muscles of your abdomen. And You see there's a trend here. It all you know, typically happens because there's a muscular um, weakness. You may notice that a ventral hernia decreases the size when you're laying down. And the perennial hernia occurs when organs or tissue push through an opening or weakness in the pel- pelvic floor into your abdominal cavity. And those hernias are also relatively rare. So... Pam, I know what I just described is so darn exciting. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I, guess, I
0: guess, you know, you're right. But the thing is that each one of them has its own pain, right? Um, not only the pain of having a hernia, but also that there's problems, you know, in, in post-op, you know, after you've had it. So let's talk about the two most common, which is the um, which is... I'm gonna call groin. It's and let, let me tell our listeners first. Neither Jay, Jay or I are medical professionals, we're not surgeons, we we are we, we look at these things through the lens of just common folk, you know. What is it that we feel would be most beneficial for people to know and could actually help them alleviate some confusion in the process if they find themselves with a hernia or, or some other ailment um, when they go into the doctor's office we can do of course a lot of research on on Google but it is our intent to give you enough facts and and information so that you can at least have a direction of where to look when you go into Google because you can uh, find yourself going down the rabbit hole which Jay and I have both had the experience of doing to just find out as much information as you can and then you don't know which direction to go in. So let's talk about the two. Let's talk about the the groin and the biblical uh, hernia. The biblical hernia often happens in childbirth. It could be the child itself or it could be the mother because you've got to remember that it is a weakening The hernia is a result of weakening in the muscle wall and and that subcutaneous uh, muscle that's underneath your skin is either weak or there's a hole there. And so your your internal organs, whatever they are, your intestines or uh, anything that has to do, your liver or kidneys or whatever, could be pushing through that opening, making the opening larger. And so you might see people who have a lump on the side of their their waist or in their stomach and and it hurts. And so there are a lot of common symptoms that are associated with hernias. Um, Not only is the bulging one of them, it could be severe pain that you're having, but there's nothing that you've done physically that could have, acerbated it other than heavy lifting in the case of heavy lifting people who do a lot of heavy lifting um and jay you know this you know we see people who do a lot of heavy lifting they tend to, to wear one of those belts right those belts help to make sure that the muscles are compressed
1: everything <laughs> stay everything stays intact right right exactly and so, everything stays intact and so, listeners, if you listen to um, any of our podcasts when we're talking about health and, and keeping your muscles, you know, keep exercising, keeping your muscles sturdy, boy, this is one reason, you know, to make sure that you got your muscles really tight and, and you're, you're doing something rather than just sitting around.
0: Right, because I'm going to tell you something, everybody has the capabilities of having a six-pack, you, you know, even you and I, you know, <laughs> have a six-pack, even though it's hidden, it may be hidden, but it's there, and so if we don't take those muscles, use those muscles, then they will become weak, um, and exercise can actually, you know, acerbate the problem if there's a problem that already exists, there are people, around the world who have had hernias it's it's something that uh they say one out of ten people uh have a hernia or can get a hernia and so it is kind of like a responsibility on our listeners to you know to make sure that we are our our muscles are intact and to do as much as possible because hernias are not they're not easy to fix and I'm gonna put it that way. And the thing is they can call, come back and cause, you know, more serious problems. For example, if when you look at uh, a hernia, um, umbilical hernia, you know, what they do, the procedure that they go through, there's many types of different operations. Um, there's the mesh, and I'm just gonna hit on the ones that are most common here in the United States, some mesh. Um, and then there's an open what they call. You can go heavy mesh or you can go light mesh. A mesh is a, a type of uh, fibers, or it looks like a patch uh, that they actually insert once they do the sur- once they do the herniated surgery, which is a part of a removal of the uh, of the herniated part of the, the
1: tucking the, tucking things back in where they need to be. Right? Yeah, pretty much. It's like a band-aid. Thank yeah. you, Jay.
0: I was trying to <laughs> to explain it in a way that makes sense, but it is. It's like a balloon. Think of a balloon. Um, When you put uh, water in a balloon, okay, and instead of tying off the top of that balloon so that the water holds in, you got this hole that the water can seep out of. So think of that as, as a hernia. Um, And then from there, when you look at the hernia, you say, okay, there are hundreds of thousands, I'm going to say thousands of lawsuits out there because of hernia surgery. And a lot of them have to do with using the mesh. The mesh can be light and almost like web-like, or it can be a heavy one. And it's actually thick. The heavy mesh is actually thicker, but it seems to overturn over time and looking at research, the heavy mesh tends to actually be causing more problems than the lighter mesh. Now you think the heavier mesh would hold everything in, but it's the pain that comes along with it. The after surgery, you know, people talk about, you know, stress or having this scratching feeling under the skin or burning sensation. It can happen, you know, it happens in different ways to different people. People have end up in clinical uh, pain centers because of the fact that they're in so much pain because of having her- hernia surgery that it's like they're unable to perform their, their normal, you know, functions like walking or or standing or sitting for a long time or even lifting.
1: Hey, Pam. And so... I, I got a question for you. When you were looking at the, um, when you were doing your research, did it say what the mesh was made out with those lawsuits? Is, is it because the mesh was made out of a, a material that was falling apart or, or the body was rejecting? Or did they say, you know, what the deal was with the mesh stuff?
0: Yeah, so let me tell you the the problem with the mesh is that we have nerves and tissues all through our body. And what happens is those nerves and tissues adhere to the mesh and can get tangled mm. in the mesh okay. and so that's why people are experiencing this itching or burning sensation or this pulling sensation you know where it's like they can move a certain way and they feel this pull that's underneath their skin but it actually hurts so with the mesh because it has these tiny holes in it it you're your body is actually trying to adapt to this new apparatus that's in a foreign your system. body,
1: right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so what it does, it tries to graft itself in to it. And so when I say a band aid, it's more than just sitting on top of the skin, your, your muscles, your tendons, your nerves are actually being intertwined within there and that's what's causing the problem thing is, to have the mesh removed, it takes multiple surgeries.
1: I have to, and I don't know, because I didn't do any research on this, and maybe you can tell me, is it like scar tissue that's built up on the mesh that creates the, because whenever there's a foreign bot, my understanding is, and like you said, I'm not a doctor, and I don't play one on TV or radio, right. Right. <laughs> but it's, right. it seems like there's a foreign something in there that your body's going to attack it and say, what is that? That doesn't belong here and start, you know, doing things that are not going to make the person happy.
0: Yeah, that's, that's true. And so for what I've been able to find in, in the research is that it, the mesh itself is it acts as if, the because the body's trying to respond to it, okay, it's trying to integrate it into its own system, you know, its own functions, its natural ability to adapt. It's impossible to do with, in the case of a a mesh, because you have nerves that are actually being affected by the mesh, you know, and those nerves are, are what we feel, you know, like, it's like pricking up your finger, you know, or cutting your finger, you can put a bandaid on it, but doesn't stop the pain. Right. Right. It's it's almost like that. And so until that starts to heal, and even after it starts to heal, you know, with the scar tissue, there's scar tissue pain, and then there's mesh pain. Mm. So from the research, there are two types, you know, that they have been looking at the scar tissue itself, you know, and so causing that pain, but then there's nerve problems because of the mesh. And so they separated it. So it's a lot of different research, but there's hope because there is a a surgery, a surgical procedure called SOLDICE. It's S-O-U-L-D-I-C-E. And what it does, the dice doesn't use mesh at all. The problem, uh, uh, let me go back to mesh for a second. The problem with mesh is even though they can use the light mesh, the problem with the light mesh, we talked about the heavy mesh. The light mesh is that when they're inserting it, there's a probability that they will create a fold in the mesh, you know, or some some sort of defect in the way that the mesh is laid down.
1: Because it's not so, its not as stiff as the thicker mesh, right? It's right, more flexible exactly. so it can maybe fold over on itself perhaps. Absolutely,
0: and so when I say thousands of lawsuits, I'm talking about thousands, and mm-hmm. I'm just talking about the U.S. alone, mm-hmm. okay? And always, the thing is, what always goes back to the court is the mesh itself. Mm-hmm. When people are suing, They're the attorneys, the attorneys that are representing these people are looking at the mesh and when you talk about mesh, all these companies, because, you know, mesh is made by a company or manufacturer and these companies are competing against each other. So there's their businesses, they're in it for the profit. Now, I'm not gonna say the doctors are in it for the profit, but as
1: as we know Oh Pam, of, oh come on. <laughs> I, I'm sure they they all work for a pittance right, they, or something you know, to, yeah. to use their
0: mesh, right? Their yeah. mesh, their procedures, their you know, because of the fact that they're driving it because after all these decades of people having problems, post surgical problems from mesh, They
1: are still using mesh. And so, um, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but it it reminds me of um, women who have had um, children and women who have had hysterectomies. I believe there are some, some instances where things start to fall and there's like a pressure. And some of those surgeries, I believe, now this was years ago that I heard about this. Some of Mm -hmm. those surgeries also involved mesh where they were made like a hammock in the abdomen to support those things that were falling, you know, due to either childbirth or um, women's uh, hysterectomies.
0: Yeah, and even I heard of, and this was maybe 20 years ago, I heard of them using mesh when women were having problems with incontinence, you know, where the fact that they were... The bladders were. Right. Things were pressing
1: down and falling and. Falling. Gravity was taken over. Yeah. Because everything had become so weak, especially Uh women who had had uh, many children, is what my understanding is. Again, Uh I'm not a doctor and I don't play one on TV or radio. But
0: but here it is. We said we would talk about real people, you know, people of every walk of life. But, you know, the thing is, there's evidence out there that those things do happen and we find ourselves in a situation today after decades and decades of them coming out with this mesh surgery yeah. that would people are still having problems you would think at this point things would have changed technology would have made things better you know lawsuits the, you think
1: would have had well, an impact right
0: absolutely but when you when you look at the numbers the lawsuits are increasing all the time and so when you go into your doctor, there you have to be at least mindful of what type of surgery. Because there's also laparoscopic surgery, but it still requires a mesh, right? Where you just have a camera that's doing all the work. And but so, if the mesh is still being put place then and so for instead th- of an open surgery.
1: And so for those who are not familiar with laparoscopic surgery, and I say this because I've been through it, um, that is where you—they go in through your belly button, and they put scope in there, and they do surgery without making incisions. They actually inflate your abdomen to make room. Um, so <laughs> you wouldn't think that they would, you know, be blowing up your abdomen, but they blow it up like a balloon um, so that they've got room to work in there. So, um, but just like Pam said, uh, you know, they can when you get laparoscopic surgery, they can put, you know, other devices in there inside that you just don't have um, an incision, a scar.
0: Right, exactly. So you eliminate the scar, but you don't eliminate the mesh in the case of laparoscopic surgery, in the case of a hernia. Mm -hmm. So, but in Sultis, let's go back to some technology that's been around. It's been around for about 10 years, but not everybody is able to do it. It takes a very skilled and uh, patient. Yeah, (laughs) it takes a very skilled physician to actually do. You have to be trained in this procedure because what you're doing is they make the incision, so you're going to have the incision. But what they do instead of using mesh, they take the layers of your muscles and they actually unfold it. And when they close you back up after they remove the hernia or cut the, the hernia, because they'll cut it, cut it off or close it off, what they'll do is they'll almost like putting on one coat, like a top coat over top of over, an overcoat or top of, and so they'll do it, seal it back up without having to do the match.
1: And so At let least, me, let me ask you something too. It, it, and I don't know if you know the answer to this but don't they do something similar for rotator cuff injuries? It seems to me that one of the, now I don't know if, I, I don't know that it works every time, but it seems to me I heard that they do something similar for rotator cuff injuries because that's a muscle thing.
0: Yes, yes, and you know what? I don't know if, if that's the same procedure, but I do know in the case of rotator cuff, they pretty much shred your muscles in order to make the repair, mm. and then they have to put all those torn muscles back together, right? Right. right.
1: Yeah, stitch them all together.
0: Stitch them all together, yeah. and but at the same time, if you hurt anybody who's gotten surgery on their shoulder, they are in better shape now than they've ever been.
1: Yeah.
0: Right. Because yeah. eventually, you have the pain. And whenever you do surgery, there's going to be some, you know, post post pain that you're going to have to deal with but the recovery is a lot quicker mm-hmm. and the same thing is true in in the case of a hernia where they use the salt dice. boy that procedure. sounds
1: preferable I mean who, who would want a foreign body if you can get somebody who's skilled to do that kind of procedure but you know we've we've had we've been down this road before Pam we're right. talking <laughs> about physicians and You know it's the path of least resistance what's going to be the quickest what can i do to get this person out of here and off the table it's like you gotta have someone who's really dedicated and patient when they're not not a patient but patient like willing to take the time and be that detailed with that kind of um surgery right right exactly and here's the problem,
0: Jay, because I've listened to several people talk about uh, their post-surgery um, pain. They didn't know when they went into the doctor that they were going to have been as much pain as they were. Yeah. No one, no doctor told them, okay, this is be a long-term effect of having the surgery. Okay. And so... A lot of people are basing not only their claims, their, their legal claims, on the, using the mesh in the first place because of the fact that they weren't told about you know, the, the problems that are, are associated with the mesh, including infections, but well, they were never told about the subsequent pain as a result of having that type of surgery.
1: Right. And, and I'm going to say this again because you and I keep preaching this. In our podcasts, our goal is to give people information so they can become empowered and not rely 100% on what a medical practitioner is telling you. You have to go in there smart. You have to ask questions. You have to be your own advocate. You you can't, if you don't, then you may pay the price. And boy, who wants to do that?
0: it's not worth it. It's not worth the being in constant pain. I mean, and to actually lose some function that you previously had, even though you may have been in pain, it didn't debilitate you to the point that you could no longer work. And that's some of the stories that I would hear in not only here in the U S but also in the UK where they actually did a documentary on, um, hernia mesh surgery and, and the, Pain and the, the subsequent pain from the surgery, that people were experiencing just because they use mesh. But when you look at the, on the other side of the fence, when you look in at saltus, it may take, it takes a specialty to do it, but you also have, I would suggest to anybody before you decide to go get hernia surgery, Find out what your doctor, what procedures that physician is going, that surgeon is going to be using, and understand that if they can't perform or they try to to uh, steer you away from having something that's more effective, like saltus surgery, then you know you need to go find somebody else.
1: And that's always an option. Everybody has the option of finding somebody else and and seeking a second opinion or even a third or fourth opinion should never make somebody feel bad or that they're hurting somebody's feelings by going to get uh, you know another opinion because we all only have one body right it's like <laughs> we don't have like an extra in the closet uh, if, if something doesn't work out And people should never feel bad about going to, to check out other opinions. You should always feel comfortable doing that. No one should ever pressure uh, you. I,
0: and I completely agree, Jay, and I'm sure our listeners will completely agree. You know, I, I tend to go into, you know, when I'm first visiting my doctor, when I go find a new physician. I have this thing, I wanna know as much about them as they trying to find out about me, you know, because not every, it's a practice. When they say a practice, medical practice, that's what they're doing, <laughs> they are practicing. And so let me see how much practice you've had in this particular area before I turn myself, you know, and my well being over to in your hands. And so people don't tend to do it. They they either have gone to their doctor for so long that they trust them, you know, and they've built up a relationship with them. Well, here it is. We can all, we, we can't pick family, but we can pick, pick friends, right? right. <laughs> you know, and we can decide whether this person is right for us and right for, and unfortunately that doesn't happen all the time.
1: And And just like so, you said, you know, they need to be right for us, and it could be that they used to be right for us, but now they're not, no longer right for us. And I only say that out of personal experience. I've changed doctors a few times because, well, you know, this doctor was good for me 10 years ago, but yeah, you know, this doctor's n- n- not, not filling the bill. And I go find right. a new one.
0: Right, exactly. Until it feels right for you, mm-hmm. you know, I do the same thing with dentists. Yeah, You know, I I have the same conversation. I've been with more dentists than probably I could probably fill a book with, you know. But the thing is that if you're not, if you're not doing what, if I tell you I've done the research, because this is what I usually do. I go into, especially in a dentist's office, I'll do all the research, you know, find out what's new, what's, what's, what, and when I say research, I'm not talking about TikTok and Google. I'll go... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, that's, a yeah, that's a whole different you know that's, that's a whole a different
1: whole, podcast i think we did yeah. one on that <laughs> i think we did i think we, we did. did
0: but i'm talking about look at the medical and the dental journals reliable
1: that are out sources, sources scientific and find out, data yeah
0: yes absolutely find out what's out there find out what's happening find out what research has been conducted, find out what studies have been most successful and find, and find the findings. When we talk about facts and findings, data and information, we're not going to Google and, and YouTube and, and, and TikTok videos to find this out for you guys. We are actually trying to do a, be a diligent, and responsible host to you, to our listeners, so that we actually can give you the right information. We could talk about hernias from now till eternity. There is actually some podcasts that are just isolated for hernias alone, you know, because of the fact that. But there are physicians, uh, a group of physicians that are doing it, and it just seems to me that they are still pushing. A lot of them are still pushing the mesh um, because there is a hospital. It's called Soldis Hospital. It's as uh, it's actually, and they are the specialists in the world of hernias. Um, so well, who, knew? To... who knew?
1: Who knew there was <laughs> such a big deal about hernias?
0: Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, because I would have never known a hernia is a hernia. I never knew, and never did I know that it was so painful because I've never had a hernia. You
1: know, I, I, I gotta... had a, a
0: surgical hernia, like on my skin.
1: Right, incisional hernia. But I, right. how many times have you heard people say, oh my gosh, I almost got a hernia from lifting that thing. Right? right? It's, it's it's an expression, right? I mean, right. I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. Oh, I think I got a hernia from, hernia. from lifting that thing. It's like, really? I don't think you did. Right. Because people yeah. really do have hernias, and, and I don't think you have one.
0: <laughs> right, Right, but they they are prevalent. And yep. when you think of one out of ten people having a hernia, and this is just in the U.S. alone, you would think that, okay, there are people probably walking around with hernias and don't even...
1: Don't even. They're asymptomatic. They don't know it. Right. Yeah,
0: They don't know it. Yep. They don't know it until it gets to the point that they've done something or... or is acerbated, you know. Uh, and, Something's so, poking through
1: that it shouldn't be. Right, right. Exactly. Where'd that come from? Uh-oh. Right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that is so true. Yeah. But we're going to, on this note, um, we I think we've given our recommendations. Talk to your physicians, find out as much as you can. If you find, if you feel like you do have a hernia, yeah, go to your primary care physician and determine if it, yes, it is in fact a hernia because uh, I found out through my research that a woman, there was a woman who the doctor, she had a child, her doctor told her that she had a hernia. Um, They put the mesh in. She could not, she was rushed to the hospital twice after surgery because of the amount of pain to the point that she was on her knees in pain, you know, and come to find out when they went back in there to remove the mesh because they knew that that's what was causing the problem. It took four surgeries. Well, it took four hours for her. It took four hours because it was in her lower abdomen. Um, for them to remove the surgery, they told her she did not need the mesh, and it was not a hernia. Oh, it was just a. It was just the weakening of her muscles. Have been torn apart during pregnancy, so, and that could have been an easy fix for her. Mm-hmm. Um. And but you know, but those things happen. You know, mistakes happen. People, everybody's human. Everybody makes mistakes. But if you have enough information to to guard yourself against those type of mistakes, then we're here, we got you. We're here to, to help you along the way.
1: So listeners, you're probably wondering what the answer to the trivia question is that Pam asked um, at the beginning of the podcast. So Science Magazine, um, this is a, an article from 2016 talking about all the kinds of visitors and inhabitants of uh, that are living on our body. So Pam, take it away and talk about those tiny bugs that live on our face.
0: So there are three mice species that live on your face. Now these microscopic creatures are found across the human body, but are particularly dense, and this is, which means overly populated, near your nose, your eyebrows, your eyelashes. They live in the body's hair follicles. Now, is that gross or not? And it feeds on the gland secreted um, the gland secreted oils. So when when you got gunk <laughs> in your hair, you know, or you have cosmetics that are built up on your face. Sleep
1: in your sleep, eyes, right? Sleep
0: in your eyes, you know, I hate to say it's snot in your nose. Um, <laughs> this army of mites come out, which is an estimated one point five million on average come out and consume all of this stuff that's located around the hair.
1: So listeners, you are never alone ever. None of us, we are never alone. We've got our friendly mites always somewhere on our face and possibly other areas of her body that I don't even want to think about. What do you think, fam? You're never alone.
0: That's all I can say. (laughs) <laughs> Wash your face often. <laughs> Wash your face often. That's all I'm going to do. That's all I'm going to say, Jay. I'm going to actually change my, my uh, beauty regimen to, to more often than not.
1: <laughs> every hour on the hour, right? <laughs> right.
0: With 1.5 million of them coming out every time or to preach for my, my face, yeah, this will be something I will be doing more often. Listeners, thanks a lot. See you next time.